This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On today's podcast, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that disappointed 2,500 Kickstarter backers and the story of how he made it all right. In this episode, you'll learn how to find what product features your customers care about, how to use Reddit for feedback and as a sales channel. It's actually this entrepreneur's number one sales channel and the tough lesson that this entrepreneur learned when he blindly trusted professionals. Today, I'm joined by Gareth Everard from rockwellrazors.com. That's R-O-C-K-W-E-L-L-R-A-Z-O-R-S.com. Rockwell Razor's first product, the Rockwell 6S, is a customizable razor that uses double-edged razor blades, which costs about 10 cents each instead of cartridges, and was started in 2014 with a Kickstarter campaign and based out of Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Gareth. Hey, thanks, Felix. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about your story and this uh, flagship product that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Morgan and I, my co-founder and I, met at our, in our senior year at Western University in London, Canada, uh, and we sort of connected over just talking about pain points in the razor industry. We were both very into entrepreneurship and, and noticing that the razor industry in particular had a lot of really marketing gimmicks that were kind of keeping it afloat. I mean, really, we identified, and most men will also identify with this, you don't need six blades and rotating balls on your face and vibrating pulses and mm. big bulbous handles and extra lube strips to get a good shave. Um, but that's kind of what's getting peddled to most men nowadays as the uh, solution to their shaving woes. And what's worse is now there are you know startup shave clubs coming out and saying, oh, yeah, well, we have all that stuff and we'll deliver it to you monthly. So now you have to pay the postal service to ration your cartridges to you. So we were kind of looking at what alternative is there uh, to cartridge shaving that could deliver real shaving value to customers. And what we kind of decided real shaving value would be is an incredible shave at a price that's actually low. So ultimately, we settled on uh, a razor that kind of hit three key points for us in that one, it was adjustable. So the idea behind any Rockwell razor, we have the 6S and then our upcoming Kickstarter campaign for the Rockwell Model T, uh, any Rockwell razor is adjustable. And what that means is that there's a slight adjustment as you increase or decrease the size from Rockwell size one to size six, which is just a small adjustment in the angle that the blade will cut the hair at, uh, which essentially means that any man can get a close, comfortable shave with just a single blade. Uh, So Rockwell size one is great for men with kind of uh, more sensitive skin, less thick facial hair, whereas size six is great for guys with coarse, curly facial hair, or uh, a big, thick beard that they're hacking off. Uh, the, the next big thing for us was that the razor had to be easy to use. People are pretty used to kind of the ease of use of other razors, so we wanted to make sure that our razor was very intuitive. Um, and a big, big important part for us is using the, the single-edge design that, I'm, uh, that we used it was very important to us that on Rockwell size one, it was impossible to cut or nick yourself. So it was very easy for someone to transition over from cartridges to using our razor. And the final thing that we identified 
is that we're going to use something called double-edged razor blades. So you know in movies when someone's like cutting up the cocaine, uh, people yes. actually used to shave with those razor blades. Uh, and our razor actually uses those. And they're still available today on Amazon. Uh, and we sell them through our website. Uh, on our website, you can get them for, for $0.10 cents each. So a 100-pack is free shipping. with It's just $10. So that's essentially two years of shaves for about 10 bucks. Uh, and you can get them on Amazon, too. Uh, and all the brands are cross-compatible. So there's no shaving system that it locks you into. So essentially, that's what we designed. Uh, we put the idea up on Kickstarter. That was the Rockwell 6S in 2014. It did $148,000 uh, raise in under a month. And uh, yeah, we launched our store pretty much right after that to continue taking pre-orders. And uh, we've been operating ever since. Awesome. Yeah, I want to get into the Kickstarter campaign in a second, uh, but I want to talk about the very beginning. You said that there were three features that you felt that, that were missing in the marketplace. Uh, adjustability, easy to use, double-edged double razor blades. How did you, or were you able to validate this prior to launching a Kickstarter campaign to see if there's actually any demand for this other than, you know, you, that, other than the need that you, maybe you had yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Morgan, the idea kind of came from Morgan uh, he restores old vintage straight razors or restored. Uh, it was something that his grandfather got him into. So he'd buy uh, old straight razors at like, estate sales or on eBay, and he'd restore them and sharpen them up uh, and then sell them, flip them essentially to people who are interested in nice uh, straight razors. And by grace of that, we had found Reddit communities. There's a community on Reddit called Wicked Edge, which has almost 80,000 members, I believe, which is kind of a big supportive group, kind of who are all into what is called classic shaving or wet shaving. So uh, we were able to go on there and see all the demand for this kind of razor, which includes straight razors and double-edged razors like ours, uh, and, and understand that there absolutely was a market for this. And then essentially from there, we designed our razor with the uh, a user in mind who is totally unfamiliar with this kind of razor. And that's really where making Rockwell size one and those lower size settings, totally intuitive and easy to switch over from cartridges over to using a Rockwell razor. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. So you you knew that there was a demand for it because you know you looked at the the kind of the marketplace and see what people were talking about, and and obviously Morgan had experience selling this already. So when you guys sat down and said, okay, let's try to make this into a business, what was like the first step in turning this into actual real product? Yes. Yeah, so we knew that we wanted to make it a double edged razor design, uh, and we knew that we needed some sort of key differentiators. So we actually started with deciding that the razor would be made in stainless steel. So it, was, it would essentially have the air and actually the reality of a product that will totally last generations. Like you'll drop it on the floor and it'll do more damage to the floor than to the razor itself. That was going to be really important to us. Uh, and we kind of, by grace of looking for differentiation points over other razors in the market, eventually came to this adjustability factor. And by pitching it to kind of friends, uh, going to the Entrepreneurship Center on campus at Western, we really began to understand that that adjustability factor was exactly what people were looking for in a razor, and that's, that was a big selling point for us. So we kind of just doubled down on making the best adjustability factor that we could. So like you were, were you asking them specific questions to kind of tease this information out? Or how did you know that, how did you arrive on, okay, adjustability is something that people want? Because I think this is a, a kind of exercise that's, exercise that's obviously important, but maybe listeners out there might not know how to go about finding out which features their customers are going to want for a product that doesn't exist just yet. Yeah, so we found it pretty straightforward. We essentially asked a bunch of different people 
what their biggest pain points on shaving were. So kind of the expected stuff came up, like price was an issue. But what we heard a lot was irritation and razor bumps. Uh, And by just diving into the science a little bit more, we actually found out that there was a scientific reason that uh, cartridges cause irritation and razor bumps. And that's that those multi-blade cartridges, oftentimes when people get razor burn from them, uh, it's because the, the extra blades that you don't need are actually shaving off a little extra layers of skin at the very top, which obviously would lead to irritation. And the other issue is when the leading blade of a cartridge gets dull, it can begin pulling at the hair as you're shaving with a cartridge. And then once it's pulled out, the following blades will cut it. But the issue now is that the hair is now deeply under the skin instead of just being right at the surface. So you've cut the hair too deep, which will lead to ingrown hairs. Uh, So our research also led us to double-edged razors, just a single blade being the answer. And when you explain that to people, there's there was kind of just a, you know, their faces would light up and they're like, oh, I totally understand now that that makes a lot of sense uh, why cartridges would do that. And double-edged razors sound uh, like a better option. And ultimately, we wanted a razor that would be approachable to anyone so that that adjustability factor that had the approachable low Rockwell size one setting where it was impossible to cut or nick yourself and it was easy to transition from cartridges that ended up being super important to us and our testers as well. Yeah, well, I think you're on to something where I understand exactly what you're talking about because you're, when you're explaining to me and, and it sounded like the, the customers or at least the beta testers that you were talking to also understood it when you talked to them, explain it to them. Was this hard to kind of translate onto the online world because, you know, obviously when you I understand all the problem that you're trying to solve, understand the, why the feature solves it, but then does that kind of gap that you have to, I guess, cross, is it hard to make that, that build that bridge essentially for customers who realize, okay, this is the problem and this is why their particular features solve my problem? Well, this is where I think Kickstarter really comes into it. What Kickstarter, I find, lends itself to very, very well is that it allows you to just put a bunch of information on a page. And as long as you've structured it in a way that is clear, even if it's long, even if you've got a three to five minute video, you have a page that truly takes maybe upwards of 10 minutes to read. Uh, The community on Kickstarter is very supportive and patient with reading through those pitches. As long as you keep them engaged while they're reading through, you can put a lot of persuasive information on there. And not only that, but test kind of what resonates most with potential customers. So in that way, I found that Kickstarter was a phenomenal medium for us to start out on because we could get all of that information out there. And not everything we started with resonated with customers. Uh, For example, well, a big part of our pitch was that the the blades, the double-edged razor blades that Rockwell razors use are recyclable. They're totally environmentally friendly. And essentially what we heard from feedback on the Kickstarter page is people were like, eh, that doesn't really bug me that cartridges are not recyclable and yours are. Uh, so so we learned, but that was, a, that was a big factor for us. And then we we're like, okay, I guess we have to change our pitch on that aspect. So Kickstarter is really helpful in terms of testing persuasive content. Yeah, that's an interesting other, I guess, other angle or other side of the coin that I think about, about notice, not just know, knowing what features your customers want, but then also which ones not to kind of shove in their face that don't really speak to them. And were, was it just literally people emailing you or, or writing comments saying that they don't care about it? Or how did you find out which particular features that maybe you presented in the forefront should really be dialed back and maybe removed completely? Oh, it was private emails. Uh, We'd also ask our backers. I'd send out private messages to a number of them, and we ran a lot of surveys. Uh, 
some during and a few after the campaign as well to just really understand our customer segments and and all that. And that was definitely one of the things that we pulled. Uh, but you're, it's totally okay to be messaging and updating your backers during the campaign. In fact, it's it's encouraged. Mm. So uh, that's a it's a really easy and almost uh, encouraged way to learn more about your product and the pitch that's working during the campaign. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I think one thing you were saying earlier that I want to touch on is that how with a Kickstarter page, you kind of just put everything out there and made it the, the, the you know video long or a lot of content on there. And I think there's a kind of a fear out there for a lot of people that are creating like product descriptions or you know landing pages or sales pages where they think that, oh, am I writing too much? I think what the reality is that if someone's interested in, in what you have or has a legitimate problem, they'll read an entire book about that particular topic. And I mean, that obviously happens, right? Because people buy books to solve particular problems. So I think as long as you're solving a legitimate problem and you really speak to them, you can't have too long of, you know, copy or videos or, you know, because they love kind of just diving deep into it. Um, so I want to now move over to your experience on Reddit. And I think in the email you sent to me, or uh, maybe it was in the, in the, um, in an article that, that was published about you, you mentioned that that was a really big kind of sales channel and, and obviously a very big, um, source of validation very early on. And this, this is kind of like a, I guess, a forum or like a website that maybe not a lot of people are comfortable with because typically the Reddit user base is younger and they're very kind of sensitive to, you know, corporate messaging, right? People coming in and pitching things and making it more of a sales pitch than, than being a part of the community. So what was your approach to making sure that you didn't have this kind of backlash from the Reddit community? Yeah, you made a lot of good points. Uh, it's totally not okay to just hop onto Reddit and start pitching your product. Uh, that being said, it is a phenomenal place to uh, add value and be a member of a community of people who are potential customers. So if you're just, if you know you're going to be making, say, a coffee maker, that uh, that's the business that you'll be in, and you <clears throat> you should be on Reddit anyways, learning about your uh, your market probably interacting with those customers and, and really understanding what they're looking for in a new coffee maker. Uh, and by adding value through comments, through thoughtful posts, through sharing relevant articles, you'll become a member of the tribe. And I think that's important. Uh, we did that on Wicked Edge uh, and Wet Shavers. That's their two uh, classic shaving subreddits. And not, we've never pitched our product on either of those subreddits, but whenever we make an announcement, whenever we send out a meaningful email now, uh, someone, one of many members will actually share our update or our big announcement with the community. And without fail, when those posts get shared, that is absolutely our largest sources of traffic and of sales. Yeah, that's definitely the best approach I found with Reddit is that you want the customers to speak highly of you. And because there are those customers are already part of the tribe, like you're saying, they kind of break through those barriers that are you know typically set up when you're an outsider coming and trying to pitch your product. Um, so in terms of this kind of engagement, like so you found this subreddit and you know if anyone is not on Reddit, you can pretty much find any subreddit that that would make sense for your business. Somebody out there is there's some kind of community out there that's talking about maybe it's not even even on Reddit, but maybe it's a forum, wherever it is, you, you should be there because you you know learn a lot from them and obviously they can become a sales channel for you, which is what's happening uh, you know, for, for you guys. So once you're once you're in there, like what kind of things are you actually doing to become a part of a part of the tribe? Like are you just answering questions like what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis yeah so when you're just starting out you're just kind of interacting and making sure that your username or your handle is visible if you want you can put uh your flair that's kind of your subtitle on reddit you can put in your url if you want uh some people might go to the website to kind of check out what you're working on but again you're not 
pitching. That's it's super key that you're not pitching. You're just adding value any way that you can think to add value. That could be different for different subreddits, um, but uh, any way that you can you can be adding value and making interesting content for the members of that subreddit instead of pitching your product. That's better in the early days. Now, when I'm on Reddit, I spend time answering people's questions and comments. Essentially, I can do like customer service myself on Reddit and it not be perceived as spammy. Uh, and when I make a point of responding to every single comment on any post about Rockwell on Reddit. Mm, yeah. So when you, so when you say you're not pitching, how do you, how does the, how do the members of Reddit or any forum, I guess, how do they find out about, about your company if you never really, you know, I guess, um, actively push it onto them? So I think just by the natural processes of the internet, when you launch a Kickstarter for a product that is very, very relevant for a niche community, ultimately someone will share it with the community, which is what happened for us. Uh, it was published onto Reddit by just some members saying, hey guys, I think you might find this interesting. Um, and that was kind of when comments started coming in and, and it became a little bit more kosher for you to go on and answer people's questions. Again, not pitching, but simply if they have a question about something about your product, you're just answering them. People see that you're responding. And that's actually a thing that I find Reddit community members really value. If, if a business representative is engaging with the community in a helpful manner, people really, really seem to respect that and respond well to it. Yeah, I, I, totally, I totally agree with that, that approach. So it's almost like you are participating in the community just so that you're obviously a known name and known as somebody that's already part of the tribe. And then you almost wait for someone else to introduce you, introduce your company. And then that's when you kind of come out on stage and say, hey, this is you know my thing or this is my Kickstarter campaign. And then at that point, you, you they you know don't feel like you're being too pushy at that point. You, they already recognize that you're part of the community and this is not, you're not a part of the community just to pitch. You're part of the community to be a part of it. That, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, it's like a cold call versus a warm intro. It's mm. totally exactly the same idea. I like that. I like that, uh, that analogy. And you're saying that uh, it's important to be part of the community. And I've seen this happen over time and time again, where if you are a part of the community, whether it be on Reddit or a forum, there's less. they are less likely to almost... Uh, if something goes wrong, they're more, they're less likely to turn into a mob against you because they know that you're already part of the community, and they almost give you the not necessarily benefit of doubt, but give you the opportunity to address any problems. If you're not a part of it, it's almost like you don't exist as as a person. You they don't see your face, so then you know that that's when the mob kicks in because they don't recognize you as a, a human being on the other side. So I think it's a that's another really important reason why you want to be a part of these communities. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. So let's, uh, I think, yeah. So, I mean, moral story is get on Reddit, get on the forums, um, that, that, that are relevant to your, your, your industry, your niche. So, okay. Now moving over to the Kickstarter campaign. So you found out there was this demand for, you knew because of your co-founder Morgan, he already had some success selling similar or solving similar problems, the Kickstarter campaign. So when you guys decided that, okay, let's go the crowdfunding route, like, where were you guys at? Like, did you guys have designs already? Like, how much did you have already prepared before you decided to, uh, let's say, you know, open up Kickstarter for the first time and start creating your campaign? Yeah, so we had 3D printed prototypes that were quite good. Uh, we had made just an initial metal uh, prototype of the Razor, and that's what was used in the original Kickstarter video. Uh, and that's kind of where we were at. And we had a manufacturing agreement with an American investment casting manufacturer, which is a one way to manufacture stainless steel. So we had an agreement in place that we had not executed yet or gotten uh, the pre-production samples from. 
Okay, cool. And when it came to producing the the video and the the copy on the page, you know, we're talking about probably ten minutes ago about how you have to format everything in a certain way so that it's you know easily readable or easily digestible. Can you give us some tips on on your approach? You know, obviously you have another Kickstarter campaign probably going live right at the time that somebody's listening to this. Uh, how do how did you go into this next Kickstarter campaign? Like, what did you learn about the first one in terms of the content itself that you made sure that you want to hit again the second time around? Yeah, so the first one, we're actually going about making the content on the first one in this upcoming Kickstarter campaign for the Model T uh, very similarly. We made content the first time and we made a rule with ourselves that we would get feedback from 100 people. Uh, 100 people was our rule. And once 100 people had given us feedback on the video and the clarity of the copy and the pictures and everything that we had on the page, uh, and they were happy with what it looked like, then we would go live. Uh, So we're employing the same thing for the Model T Kickstarter, uh, except this time I guess we have somewhat more resources than last time. So our video maybe looks a little nicer. Uh, We're able to fortunately have much higher level prototypes for this upcoming uh, campaign and we're a lot further along in the manufacturing than we were when we made the Rockwell success. Mm. And in terms of the content itself, like what's is the video the most important piece or is it the, the, the written content? Like if you could only focus your energy or maybe your investment into really boosting one, which would it be? I would focus on the video, but I would also not discount the value of the top one-eighth of your page. The top one-eighth of well people are scrolling down. By the way, the behavior typically on Kickstarter videos is people will begin watching the video for about 30 seconds to one minute, and then YouTube behavior kicks in. You're still listening to the song, but now you're just scrolling through looking Mm. at all the comments. So uh, you're listening to the video, uh, and you're reading kind of what the content is lower down on the page. So that, when we were just watching people behaviorally while they were reviewing our page, that's totally what happened almost every time. That's a great insight. I think I do that too. Now that you mention it, that yeah. I don't really want to sit there and watch the entire thing. At least, it's almost like an impatience thing, right? Let me see what else I can dig into right away. And that makes a lot of sense why you want to hit them with a lot of engaging things very early on on that page. And so you were you were sitting down with people and actually watching them look a hundred people and wa- watch them look at your your um you know your Kickstarter page that was still in draft and not launched yet. Yeah, totally. Anything from our dads to girlfriends to like friends of friends to just acquaintances from the Entrepreneurship Center on campus. Uh, we were pretty much just ruthlessly seeking feedback for a few weeks there. And uh, I think by the end, our videographer hated us. We were tweaking <laughs> like the, the smallest little things in the video like, oh, can you start this music like one half second later than it currently does? Uh, so she was very sick of us by the end of all of it, but it was totally worth it. And did, were, was there anything during this testing period or this, um, I guess, feedback period where you maybe had a, an assumption that you strongly believed in or you know knew that maybe even thought was true for sure, but then were proven wrong based on the feedback? Um, I think, like I mentioned earlier, the environmental thing, we really doubled down on in the first pitch on the environmental aspect, and that didn't totally resonate with people. Uh, the other one was the... Uh, we actually do, we continue to manufacture the Rockwell success in America. And for some people, it was very polarized. Either people were like, that is the best thing ever. I supported this project specifically because you make in America. And pretty much everyone else was like, that doesn't really matter to me at all. Mm. Um, so those were, I thought that that would be a big selling point. 
Um, and just just to clarify, being Canadian, uh, we did actually look into manufacturing in Canada, but every single Canadian manufacturer we approached uh, said no. So we do manufacture in America. Yeah. So when you get that kind of feedback, where it's fifty fifty, where people say I don't care, another one says Yeah, I really like that. Which way do you go? We kept it. We uh, mm-hmm. we still manufacture in America. It's important to us personally. So I think when it splits, when it splits down the middle like that. Uh, you kind of have to make a judgment call on your values. And to me, it's more important to manufacture locally. Okay. So in terms of your first Kickstarter campaign, I think this is probably more applicable to most of the listeners. How much investment do you really need to put into this, like in terms of getting someone to help you out with maybe the copywriting or maybe someone help you out with the video? How much did you guys end up investing in the, the first Kickstarter campaign? Does it cost you much at all to get started? Um, I, I would say when people ask this question, I, I say it's it's totally doable on a student's budget. Um, so if you're willing to put in the two thousand to three thousand dollars, I think we ended up putting in. By the way, most of that, almost all of that money went towards the early prototypes. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very fortunate. We had our videographer was just a friend of a friend working for twenty dollars an hour. Uh, so that that ended up being very affordable. Um, I would say if you're making a physical product, please put aside $3,000. Uh, I don't even think that's an option really anymore to not have physical prototypes. I'm pretty sure Kickstarter won't let you launch a project anymore if it doesn't have yeah. physical prototypes. Uh, so so whatever money it takes for you to make physical prototypes and then maybe add 20 to 25% just for um, pictures and video if you're not a strong picture and video person yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the the first campaign um, in the details. So you, it says here that the goal is twelve thousand dollars, end up almost raising one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Was that like so? Let's say the first day you went live, did you get immediate um, backing, or like how how did they kind of pick up over the the time period of the campaign? Yeah, it was interesting. We uh, we set it live. I just kind of texted Morgan on a Tuesday night. I was like, dude, I'm setting it live. He was like, okay, um, and we did. And I woke up the next day, we had raised $18,000. So we had actually broken our goal while I slept. Uh, I had sent out a notification email just letting people, it wasn't a pitch or anything. I just let some of the 100 people we'd gotten feedback from know, like, hey, the campaign's launched. Um, I don't actually think too many of them backed it right away. But maybe by just grace of the fact that there weren't a lot of other projects in the design category on Kickstarter at that time, we actually ended up on the very close to the top of the design category on Kickstarter. My understanding is overnight. Um, and so when I woke up, I think we were first or second on Kickstarter as a whole. And anyone who's looked into Kickstarter or, or done a campaign before will know that being one of the top ranked projects on Kickstarter at any given time is pretty much the goal for any campaign. Um, it, it somewhat just promises a lot of eyeballs and by extension, uh, more pledges. So we sort of lucked out <laughs> in that at that particular time, there was no other project that happened to be doing too well. So a combination of views and pledges is, uh, no one really totally knows Kickstarter's algorithm, but it is some combination of views and pledges that gets you to the top. So we were up there and we got a lot of visibility and we did a lot of our raise within kind of those first three days. Wow. So you almost like nonchalantly decide, let's just launch this, went to sleep, woke up, $18,000, very little promotion then, right? Like how did, why do you think that it got so much traction, even though you, you know, you guys weren't doing too much to promote early on? Yeah, I think someone did just post it to the subreddit. Uh, Someone posted Mm. it. There are a few other 
uh, classic shaving forums that people posted it to. So outside of just the people who are are proud Kickstarter supporters who spend a lot of time supporting Kickstarter campaigns that they like. I mean, you'll see people on backers on Kickstarter who they'll pledge and it's like, John, 524 projects backed. And you're like, wow, John, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then, it, yeah, we did get visibility to a lot of the classic shaving community as well very early on, which I think helped with the views plus pledges some, uh, which kept us at the top. So this obviously worked out for you guys organically where people knew about it or knew about you and knew about this project and decided to spread it on your behalf. And it worked out organically, like I was saying. So should you, would you recommend, you know, other listeners out there, maybe would you take this approach where you would try to connect with influencers or maybe power networkers, I guess, in specific communities first and then see if they're willing to work with you to help you promote it? Like, you know, how can you... You know, obviously organic is worked out for you, but if someone wants a little more, I guess, control over uh, success on Kickstarter, is it possible to set yourself up for success by, you know, maybe going about it more methodically? Yeah, I think for if you're doing your first physical product and this is your first time on Kickstarter and maybe your first delve into entrepreneurship, um, I would really focus on those niches and adding value to niches and finding people in a niche specific to your uh, your campaign and your product, rather than trying to pitch TechCrunch and Wired to feature your product. Mm. Uh, not saying that that's impossible, that they will feature you, but typically those larger outlets that people really gun for, for coverage, which is what I think you're going at, uh, typically they're looking for a narrative that goes beyond, hey, please check out my Kickstarter. I think it's pretty cool, and I think you might too. Um, so typically the the safer thing if people are looking for a more guaranteed baseline level of success i think that connecting with influencers in your niche like you mentioned is uh, is probably the better way to go that's what i'd recommend mm, yeah so well, speaking of you know these larger news outlets or larger publications did you promote it differently once you broke through your goal and were you know obviously seeing a lot more traction like did you um, you know i guess turn on the, the marketing machine or whatever you had ready to go at that point not not really no uh we we kind of thought, oh, what what do you do if something's going well? How do you promote? And you know, just using the Google machine, found out that press releases are a thing. So we wrote a few press releases. We just used some cheap press release software. Uh, and to no one's surprise, that didn't work out very well. It got picked up by almost nothing. Um, and really, our campaign wasn't it wasn't featured in any big outlet. It wasn't featured in anything. Uh, not that there's no value in that. I think that that's how a lot of Kickstarter campaigns that blow up do very well for themselves, that traffic is directed from Uncreate or Huffington Post or sites like that. Um, but ours really was a campaign built on the back of being shared on niche websites uh, and not at all by... Uh, hardcore pitching mm -hmm. press. But you put in a lot of the work uh, before launching by being yeah, part yeah, of Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to downplay the amount, the number of hours invested before the campaign launches. I think that might be a misconception that a lot of people have on Kickstarter that you, you build your campaign page uh, and that's all the work that you put in before, then you launch it and then you pitch. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. It should be uh, some degree of time invested in building a community and building a passionate following if you can, around your product and maybe even content that you produce before you launch a campaign. Uh, and then definitely pitch press right before your campaign if you've got a compelling story to tell and continue to pitch press during the campaign. But don't think that 
you can just make the page, throw it up on Kickstarter, and people will magically find you. Mm-hmm. Did, did anybody approach you though? By the time, like, let's say, you know, you obviously broke through your goal of, overnight, and then, like, was that a story in itself enough for people to want to reach out to you and say, "Hey, let's you know, learn more about what these guys are doing"? Um, it's actually interesting. I don't think even in 2014, 150 thousand dollars on kickstarter still wasn't really moving the needle in terms of news like Mm -hmm. we have kickstarter campaigns that are doing multiple millions so at the end of the day ours wasn't you know anything totally magical or out of this world uh we had a lot of pr firms reach out to us and people try to sell us stuff but there weren't a lot of people reaching out and saying hey i would like to cover you at x big news outlet Right. Makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about the aftermath, right? This is, I think, the, the juiciest yeah. part of this podcast. $150,000, uh, nearly $150,000 raised from 2,135 backers. You got the money. What happened next? Yeah. So we got the money. Uh, we went forward with the contract we had with our investment casting manufacturer in the States. They're just in the Midwestern United States. And they return something to us called the first article. So if the first article in manufacturing is when you get a first run of 10 to 30 uh, samples that are fully functioning prototypes of a product. Um, And essentially, that's what you're supposed to be expecting that the full manufacturing run will look and function like. So we got the first articles from this investment casting manufacturer, and they looked amazing. We were super excited uh, and pulled the trigger on manufacturing. Everything was looking great. Uh, In fact, we were so enthused about it that we went down to a third-party logistics place in the States. We just took a few days off school to go down and show them like, hey, this is how you assemble a razor. Uh, So you guys now can just receive all of the parts from the manufacturer. You can assemble it yourself here. Here's the list of our backers you need to fulfill to. And uh, we're going back to school. You guys take care of it. Uh, so we thought that we had totally outsourced this whole thing and, and were quite smart. It's not that we weren't passionate about the project we or product we we were. We just weren't sure how we were going to mm-hmm. fulfill well, you know, in exams because now we're talking mid December, uh, two thousand fourteen. So uh, they as we expected that the fully manufactured run would look like the first article, and we didn't actually go. Our big first mistake was we didn't go to the manufacturer to verify. We simply let them ship the first, sorry, the full production run to our third-party logistics facility, and they began assembling the razor like they had been instructed and began shipping it out to our backers. And this is when the craziness started. I think the first thing that showed up on Reddit was, I got my Rockwell and it kind of sucks. And I was like, that's that's unusual because the first articles that I have in my hands look amazing. So this must be a once-off, and it's just unfortunate that this happened. But over the coming hours, it just became more and more clear that all these people were beginning to receive their razor, and it looked terrible. And they began posting pictures that looked nothing like the the first article that we'd received. So we got on the phone with our manufacturer and said, what, what is going on? And they essentially said, well, you know, you gave us money sorry that the product doesn't look like the first article, but we do have your money and we're not giving it back to you. Um, so goodbye. Wow. So <laughs> that was that was a bit of a punch in the chest and a big lesson for me. Um, so here I am. It's kind of midterms in January 2015. Um, things are not going well. Things are not looking 
good at all. So we just shut down the shipping from the third party logistics place. Uh, we said, we're going to figure this out to our, I think we have 2,500 backers and pre-order customers at this point, uh, hundreds of which have received these faulty razors. So we brought all the parts back from our third party logistics. Uh, they're essentially sitting in my parents' basement in Toronto. Morgan and I are in London, Ontario, which is about a two and a half hour drive, three hour drive away. Uh, so we're going back every weekend, any day that we don't have class, someone's going back to my parents' basement, just looking at these razors. And it became very cl clear quickly that we were essentially sitting on a, a pile of, um, <laughs> of scrap metal. Mm. So, uh, there, we did some, we put in some effort to kind of remediate the issue, uh, the issues that had come up in manufacturing that were really causing the worst warping of the product. Uh, so we took them to a machinist. He showed us that he could solve a few of the issues and uh, we kind of let him run that solution. We paid him to run that solution on all the parts. And uh, we, we were so exhausted at this point. It's still, you know, we're going through exams. I'm trying to work on my undergraduate thesis. So we got these parts back and we were like, okay, the samples that he'd shown us fixed most of the problems and were mostly satisfied with the solution that he showed us. So we just packed up all the razors ourselves. It was it was grueling, and we shipped you know two thousand five hundred razors out, including replacements to the people who had first gotten the uh, the faulty razor in the first place. We shipped those out, and uh, again we made the and it's the last time we ever made this mistake. We didn't verify, and it turns out that the machinist who was fixing those issues had actually outsourced because we we'd shown him just a few pieces, and then we gave him two thousand five hundred times four, so. Uh, 10,000 pieces and said, could you fix all of these pieces for us? So he said, yeah, no problem, and immediately outsourced it to someone who could do more volume. And they did a terrible job, but we didn't double check that. Um, so pretty much the the anger that had been there when we shipped out the first few hundred just m massively increased. And uh, people were not happy with the product. And some people liked it, I should be clear. Uh, but there was a lot of overwhelming dissatisfaction with the razor. So I kind of had to make a decision. I say so. You, I think you mentioned this in in the in the article that, that was featured on uh, or that you wrote, which is that you made the mistake of blindly trusting a professional. And I think that's a very interesting way of putting it because you know we think about hiring professionals because they can do the job better than us. But you're saying that you can't just obviously hand them money and then expect them to do the expert work and not check it was that the issue like what was the issue like what, what was the lesson there that you learned from that made you make that uh that, that statement yeah it's uh essentially i now operate on a full trust but verify system um people will tell you that they can do things uh whether it be manufacturers website developers anything and that's fine you can trust them you should trust people if they seem like honest people but always verify so if someone says that they're going to manufacture something one way, never assume that they're going to do exactly what you two agreed on, because that's not necessarily how the world works. And if someone says that they're going to build some thing into your app or into your website the way that you've said, trust them, but also check that they did it the way that you two had discussed. Um, and that's an important lesson for me as a young entrepreneur, and one that I, I would encourage absolutely anyone who's looking into entrepreneurship to totally take to heart. Yeah, it's one of those things where you learn very quickly that you can't just throw money at problems, right? If you have something you need to be, need fixed or need done, you can't just be like, here, take the money and then expect the solution there for because no one's going to care about it as much as you, which is why, you know, like you're saying, you need to verify that it actually meets your standards when you do work with uh, any professional at all. So I kind of want to recap because I almost thought that 
the very first mistake, which is with the first manufacturer, was the end of the story, meaning that that was like the worst of of it. But so they already sent you a bunch of products that you didn't, you personally weren't happy with, and it got out to a couple hundred uh, backers or pre-orders, and they, you know, there wasn't, there was also discontent there. So you you can't, you stopped all of the shipments from then on, took all of the inventory back, and hired some machine, local machinists to work on it. He also messed it up. So now we're at the point after that. So what's going on right now with all your customers? Like, how did you manage expectations with them during, you know, during the very first shipment where people, the first few hundred people, whatever, weren't happy with it, and then now they're waiting around for their finished product? Yeah. So people had just said, "Oh, we didn't love this aspect of the product," and we sort of put out an update that said, "Okay, we we are pretty sure we understand how to fix this. It's not a big deal." Um, that was after the first few hundred uh, problem razors. So then we shipped out all 2,500 plus razors. Uh, and the feedback still was this, this still isn't right. Some people said, oh, this razor is great. And uh, a number of people said this razor isn't right. Um, so a few people at that point, I think, wrote us off like, oh, this is just another failed Kickstarter. At least they didn't not deliver. They just didn't deliver a, a good product or didn't deliver what I wanted. So we kind of had a, a decision to make in terms of there are a lot of campaign creators that if something doesn't go to plan, they they somewhat just walk away. Um, that could have been something that we did, but I don't think it's within my personality. And essentially, we just said to every single backer, I'm so sorry that we didn't deliver the product that you wanted and that we wanted to deliver you. We're going to make it right. No matter what it takes, we're going to make it right. Um, so that was met with some people, there are lots of words of encouragement and also just heaps of apathy from kind of backers that may have given up on us. Uh, but right after making that announcement, I began looking, we've, we've hired a, a small engineering firm in Toronto uh, who are willing to take us on for almost no money um, to help us with a redesign of the razor that would alleviate a lot of the problems and also just help point out investment casting wasn't a great manufacturing method for this precision tool and that we should look at something called metal injection molding, which is kind of how plastic, well, it's exactly how plastic injection molding works when you get kind of plastic toys or whatever from China, uh, except it's first, you know, metal, in our case, stainless steel. So we essentially took what small amount was left from the Kickstarter pledges and went all in with personal savings to go forward with a metal injection molding tool, which is quite expensive and uh, to go forward with manufacturing of at least enough parts to make it right with all of the backers. So we announced that. Uh, we it, That was in March 2015. Um, it took a long time for the tooling to get done, for the manufacturing to go through. Uh, and in finally, um, I'm, I'm skipping over some stuff, but in January 2016, we began shipping out the replacement metal injection molded razors to every single backer uh, that asked for a replacement, which was thousands, thousands of them, almost all, every single backer. When we sent out these coupon codes to all of them, uh, every, that was a cool little bulk discount, um, feature in Shopify. So we just used a spreadsheet and sent out these bulk discounts through a mail merge. Um, so everyone got a coupon code for the number of razors that they'd pledged for. And, uh, yeah, so they got a free razor. We shipped it to them for free and almost all of our backers, I think by the time that this podcast goes live, every single backer will have received their free replacement Rockwell success. And uh, the really good news is that the new manufacturing worked. The The reviews have been phenomenal. It's kind of universal praise of the uh, manufacturing 
the design, the, the small redesigns that we did. It's really encouraging. People seem really happy. I'm kind of getting, instead of angry emails from people each day saying, where's my razor? Why was this razor so terrible? Uh, the emails every day. I'm, I, I love doing customer service now because customer service is mostly just reading emails from people saying, thank you so much for making this really nice razor. I can't believe that you just sent this to me for free. You didn't have to do that. That's incredible. Um, which is funny because we just kind of felt like it. that's what was that's what needed to be done. It wasn't really optional. Uh, so it's cool that it resonated with a lot of customers. And the good news is now uh, now Rockwell is growing very quickly because the razor feedback was so positive. Word is spreading in the, the classic shaving community, and actually uh, we can we can barely keep the razor in stock. So uh, things have been going pretty well for us since the the new manufacturing method. And I suppose the story has a happy ending. That's awesome. I think that's you know really commendable that you took the effort and the time and obviously a lot of the money, you know, it sounds like you almost went broke uh, trying to write this, this, this issue. And to, and it, it sounds like the, to, if you, anyone, anyone else that runs into this kind of issue, you just, you know, kept the lines of communication open, you communicated to them and you, you know, obviously uh, accepted the, the, the blame for, for the, the problems and then you end up delivering the goods. And this has probably been, what, about a year and a half now that has, has passed since the, the, the initial end of the campaign. And you were able to turn things around. Like, people weren't still kind of bitter about it or anything at all like that. Like, did you have to deal with any, like, vocal minority that still didn't either trust you or the products or the company because of their initial, you know, negative uh, interaction? There was actually a vocal majority until we shipped the new product and every single naysayer, hater, whatever you want to call them, has totally disappeared. Uh, so I'm, I'm just really glad that ultimately kind of having resilience about the whole thing really resonated with people and the product ended up very solid as well. That's awesome. So does Kickstarter ever get involved in a situation like this where, you know, because obviously you're not the first one to have, to launch a campaign and obviously you've gone to the lengths to, to correct it, but there have been other campaigns where the the product is, in, is, is a failure or they, they weren't able to produce it and then they just close it down. Like, is Kickstarter involved like at all? Uh, Kickstarter never messaged me about this particular project. Um, I, I understand that they do get involved in the larger scale projects that might run into issues. Um, but the VentureBeat article that we, you know, you and I have talked about, I wrote a, a guest post for VentureBeat called How My Kickstarter Blew Up My Life. If you Google that, you'll find it. And it kind of has the, the written version of this entire story. Uh, I did send that to Kickstarter uh, on Sunday when it came out. Um, and they've responded since that and said, that's an amazing story. Thank you very much. So uh, now they've responded, but I had to reach out to them first. Yeah, I guess that's a good thing for them not to uh, bother you during that that uh, turbulent time. Uh, cool. So it sounds like everything turned around for you now. And I want to talk about like, how you're going to, I guess, continue this growth and continue this momentum that you have. And I think you might have mentioned to me maybe in an email or in passing about how uh, you know Reddit is still the strongest marketing channel for you guys. Is that is that still true? Yep. So Reddit's still a good marketing channel for us, but I wouldn't really call it marketing. Just it typically, whenever someone receives uh, a new uh, a mail shipment uh, for any wet shaving related products, they'll do something called a mail call on Reddit. And it's mostly just a picture on Imgur of their uh, what they've received in the mail. So as 
thousands of people are receiving these free Rockwell replacement razors, people are putting up pictures on Reddit and on these shave forums saying, oh, mail call, I got my free replacement Rockwell success. And then the story of the free replacement is spreading. And they're saying, wow, this razor is really nice aesthetically and it works really well. So just by organic word of mouth, um, we've I think we've actually made a return ultimately on sending out those hundreds of thousands of free replacement razors, which is kind of cool. That totally was not the intention mm. or within at all my realm of expectations around sending out that much free product. That's great. So are you, so you and Morgan, are you guys still both uh, co-founders in the company? Yeah, Morgan is still very much involved. He did go back to school just to finish up his degree, so I'm kind of handling the bulk of the day-to-day just to make sure everything that gets done gets done. Sorry, needs to get done gets done. But uh, yeah, I'm very excited to have him back as soon as he's done schooling. <laughs> yeah, so when it comes to actually running the business itself, do you, uh, you know, what's your day-to-day like and, you know, what do you spend most of, like you wake up in the morning, you step into your office, you're wherever you're, you're working, and what, what, is you, what do you spend your days doing? Yeah, so my office is my bedroom, and uh, I wake up in the morning and hop on to uh, Skype, and we just, I pretty much, anything I can't do, which is almost everything computer-related, uh, I, I manage our Shopify store, uh, and that's about it. I Any graphic design, video design, anything I do through Upwork, which is an invaluable resource for me, mm-hmm. uh, we have some really, really great people that I consistently work with. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for that that outsourced team. Uh, so that's essentially it. I'm just reviewing work that people have submitted and uh, making sure that our uh, fulfillment is still on its way. Fulfillment is essentially uh, me and my little brother who pack oh, up nice. razors and ship them out. Very cool. So uh, you said you mentioned earlier that when you were producing these uh, coupon codes, you used the uh, bulk discounts, which I think is uh, a Shopify feature itself. Are there any apps that you use from the Shopify app store to help you run the business? Uh, nope, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, that's it. We just use the bulk discount item. I think we have one app that we use to capture people's emails, but yeah, we don't do anything fancy. Mm, cool. So what are the plans for the remainder of 2016? Like, What are some goals that you want to hit? Well, uh, we're actually very excited about the the feedback that we got on the design of the Rockwell Success is that the adjustability is very key, uh, but they found that the five-piece design of the 6S was not not really intuitive to use. It wasn't as easy to use. So we have got that feedback very, very early on and have spent the last 18 months redesigning uh, the Razor kind of from the ground up. And we've come to the, a design that we've called the Rockwell Model T, which is a one-piece design uh, with a dial at the top that can adjust the, that angle that we were talking about earlier. So it just adjusts from one to six, and you can spin this dial um, to get whatever comfort setting you want. So depending on how long it's been since you've shaved or uh, if your skin is particularly sensitive that day, you can actually just very intuitively with the twist of a dial uh, adjust your comfort setting and uh, that we have another dial on the bottom that uh, opens up these doors on the top. It's kind of like little cool cargo bay doors, so you can drop in the uh, 10-cent razor blade in the top. Uh, So we we spend a long time making sure that this design's ready to go. It's being verified for manufacturing. We've gone through all the steps that we should have done on the Rockwell 6S, and we are launching that Kickstarter campaign uh, on March 29th. Uh, We're really, really excited uh, when we're hoping that there's a you know a lot of support for the Model T, and once we meet our goal, we'll be able to start investing in the tooling that we require to get production started, and uh, hopefully make the world's best razor. 
Awesome. Yeah, I think this probably might come out the same day. The Kickstarter, this podcast episode might come out the same day. So today is when the Kickstarter campaign launches. Uh, where can the listeners uh, go to find your campaign? Like, What's the best way for them to, to um, I guess, look this up? I think the best thing for them to do would be to go onto Kickstarter and just search Rockwell Model T or just Model T. You'll likely find it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gareth. So rockwellrazors.com is the site. Look up Rockwell Razors Model T on Kickstarter to check out the the latest campaign. Anywhere else that you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with uh, what you're up to? Uh, no, our website is the best place to do all that. We are not super social media active. Like I said, Reddit's the best place for us, but uh, hopefully in the coming weeks and months we'll be you know, gramming and tweeting and all that good stuff. Nice. But for the for now, Kickstarter is where all the good stuff is and our website's not too bad either. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gareth. All right. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.